You're listening to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views, and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. Hello, I'm Colin Steed, and I'd like to welcome you to Learning Now Radio. Learning Now Radio is our bi monthly podcast for all learning professionals. This is Learning Now Radio with Colin Steed and Lisa Minogue White. Welcome to episode two of Learning Now Radio. Firstly, we'd like to thank you all for the lovely feedback and support we've received following episode one. In this episode, we're delighted to welcome our guest, Jane Bozarth. Lisa caught up with Jane recently to discuss the importance of working out loud and showing your work. But it didn't stop there. The conversation continued with some Bozarth gold on new technologies and how learners are changing. First up, though, is our feature with Kim George, who reviews a particular blog that caught her eye. In this episode, Kim discusses a recent blog from Ryan Tracy on where is L&D heading? That's a good question. Over to you, Kim. Hi, everyone. Kim George here again with my thoughts on a recent blog post impacting the world of learning and development. This time, I'm looking at Ryan Tracer's write-up of his experience as a panellist at the Sydney e-learning and instructional design meetup. The topic of the evening and the title of Ryan's blog is Where is L&D Heading? And Ryan gives an overview of his answers plus suggestions for further reading for each of the questions asked. I'm going to focus on a couple now and I encourage you to search out the blog in your own time and take a look at the others. One question I was particularly interested in was, will interactive videos replace e-learning modules? Now, Ryan believes a lot of things will replace e-learning modules, and I believe it's already happening in a lot of organisations based on the work my team and I do at Getty Images. So I explored the further reading Ryan posted, and his tongue-in-cheek titled post, Online Courses Must Die, explains his reasoning. He argues... That when L&D professionals consciously integrate interactivity into their online courses, it's not actually making them any more engaging, as increasing the number of clicks required to view content is making that course more tedious rather than more interactive. He also acknowledges that real interactivity can be embedded into courseware through activities like games and branch simulations. But we, as we all know, that requires time, skills and money. This is where I start to see parallels of the work my team and I do at Getty Images. In the past, we've built online courses in Storyline with the classic click-to-reveals, drag-and-drops and matching type activities. But we rarely engage in external suppliers, like many organisations, I think, due to cost. And we just don't have the time to build more complex solutions with digital games, for example. But what Ryan goes on to say that a way forward might be to use more simple and more rapid solutions like PDFs, as they too can display structured text and engaging imagery. The challenge, of course, is to incorporate a touch of interactivity with these. When creating a learning solution at Getty Images, we tend to use a blend, often consisting of a recorded live webinar or a PowerPoint with a recorded voiceover, plus PDF worksheets, quick reference guides and checklists. Another approach we take is to link out to internet pages or to use video. This is exactly what Ryan encourages if we are to dispense with online courses in favour of PDFs, 
We've got to incorporate interactivity in a different way. And a quick win is by using an informal learning environment like a website or an internet that centralises learning resources in a particular place. It means the learner can explore the resources at their own pace. And another bonus is that a lot of content can be created by SMEs rather than always by L&D professionals. Read Ryan's online courses must die blog posts for more suggestions and other ways he thinks online learning is changing. Going back to Ryan's original write-up of his experience as a panellist, another question he was asked was, does L&D belong in HR? An interesting question and one that I primarily think about from the perspective I'm experiencing at Getty Images, where L&D does sit within HR and there are many pros and cons to this. Ryan outlines two scores of thought where one, L&D does belong in HR because that's how we achieve scale. I'd also argue that L&D can benefit from the support of HR and vice versa, particularly if the head of HR sits on the executive committee of a company like they do at Getty Images. The second school of thought is that it makes more sense to embed L&D professionals into teams across the business to manage learning in its own context. In fact, we're taking this approach where I work too, as we've got trainers focused solely on sales, but who report into L&D and who are very much part of my team. As Ryan says, both points of view are right and a true learning organisation needs both. But he goes on to say it's how the organisation implements the two, which is important. What's required is a partnership. L&D people, and I'd argue L&D champions too, across the organisation consulting and collaborating with each other and with the business to generate the right solutions for everyone. On that note, I'll encourage you to read more of Ryan's Where is L&D Heading write-up. And if you can't find it, look for my tweet soon where I'll share the link. Thank you for listening. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. And now we're delighted to welcome Jane Bozarth to the programme today. Lisa caught up with her recently to discuss the importance of working out loud and showing your work. Welcome to Learning Now Radio. I'm absolutely delighted to be able to get some time with Jane Bozarth, who has a topic and an interest and a passion and is published on a subject that is very, very close to my heart. Um, And it is about working out loud. It's about sharing what we do, about uh, being able to engage with others around topics that are really going to hit home and have real impact. Jane's recent book concentrates very much on that topic. And it's something that I really want to pick up with her today, because I know that that fits very nicely with another area that um, Jane's done a lot of research on, a lot of writing on. And that's about the changing nature of learners. So Jane, welcome to Learning Now Radio. Absolutely delighted to have you here. And I'd really like to start with something that we picked up before we started recording today about learners changing. I was very interested um, in uh, a point that you made, like I said, before we started recording on the fact that a lot of our concentration is about tools, technology, the way in which learning delivery is changing. But you see things differently, don't you, Jane? So tell me a little bit about your passion on this. Well, I, I, I love technology, and, I, and thank you, by the way, for having me. Thank you to you and to Colin, who's a dear, dear man and a friend of mine, for, for having me on today. Um, I, you know, I love technology. I love 
living in the future. I love uh, especially seeing how the possibilities of a world that uh, that's going to realize technological changes that will happen in my lifetime that are that are just dazzling. So I love technology, and I'm not meaning to discount the fact that we're getting better at things, that we're being more agile with things, that I think we are developing a, a lot of um, of new approaches and new technologies that are going to also support learning and workplace learning and our learners in the future. But the other thing I see changing, and I'm asked this all the time, people people will say, what do I think will be the game changer or which particular technology of, of six are going to make a lot of difference? And, and what I see is that learners are changing. When I started talking about this kind of stuff, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, uh, I would ask people what they had learned online. And that question has evolved to what have you learned from YouTube? And even five years ago, I would get a couple of hands raised in answer to the question, what have you learned from YouTube? And now when I ask that question, every hand in the room goes up and people are talking over each other to tell me something they've learned from YouTube. And it is very often um, something about home repair, you know, plumbing or it's auto repair. Sometimes it's cooking. Sometimes it's uh, hairstyling. I, I met a single dad recently who was very frustrated. He's raising these daughters and he finally had to teach himself uh, hair. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think it might be one of my most um, popular channels, having an um, eight-year-old daughter. Absolutely. Yes. The constant demand um, on elaborate hair. <laughs> right. But I, but I also hear uh, work-related things, especially around software. Like I learned to do this particular mm. function in Excel, or I learned to do this kind of animation in PowerPoint. And when I ask people why they went to YouTube, because most of the things they describe, you could go to what we call here local community colleges. I'm sure you have some equivalent vocational schools where you are. You could go sign up for a night class or you could go take a workshop. And when I ask them why they went to YouTube instead of to a formal scheduled event, they say, because I needed it right now, because the toilet was leaking then, because the car wasn't starting then, because the daughters had to get to school now. Uh, I didn't want to have to pay for it. I didn't want to have to drive somewhere. So, I, you know, these are learning and development people telling me this. And I say, listen to yourselves, right? The, the learners, I think that many of us in this business, we sit around in our meetings, in our conferences, in our offices, and we talk about and think about learning with a capital L. I think that most human beings, though, think about learning in terms of I solved a problem today. I made the toilet stop leaking. I made the car start. I made the daughter stop crying. I figured out how to make the bread rise. I figured out how to run the, the spreadsheet. So I, I don't know that they think about learning the same way we do, but what they are thinking about is that they have wised up. They've realized if they need to know something, they don't have to wait until September when the class is offered again, that they don't have to drive somewhere and sit in an eight-hour class just to learn this one particular small thing that they need in the moment. So I, I think we need to pay more attention to that, and I think we need to pay attention to the technologies that address that. I, I think we're going to need to stop looking at developing lots of formal, structured, lengthy courses for people who have started figuring out they need one bite of something right now that solves the problem. Uh, the, the secondary thing that's happening with my YouTube example that I think we ought to pay attention to is that when, when you or I or any of these other people go to YouTube and they want to learn to knit or they want to learn to cook or they want to learn to braid the hair, they probably have 50,000 choices for that. A few thousand anyway. And when you ask these people how they chose the one or two or three videos they looked at, they have very different reasons. Some people will choose the one that has the most hits, which is an interesting choice because sometimes all that indicates is the age of the video. You know, if it's been up for six years, it's going to have more hits, right? 
So they're not necessarily choosing wisely, but they are making choices. Some people prefer something with an animated character. Some people prefer something with a talking head. Some people prefer something with no talking head. So they are not only choosing when and where they want to access this learning, they are able to choose from a variety of options which one is either most appealing or they feel is more useful to them. So I think we really need to pay attention to small pieces of instruction, to performance support forms of instruction to to uh, giving learners a variety of options they can choose from. Uh, and, and it may not be the particular technology that matters so much as the ways we choose to deliver things using that technology. Well, it's really interesting. You're talking about that flow. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's the learners curating and discovering and building their own learning design. But you brought to mind something that I remember really clearly and one of the you know is kind of one of those pivotal moments I feel kind of in my career where the kind of the learning penny dropped um, I was supporting um, a community in a, an international telco and there were at the time actually in the UK in particular I hate to say it sorry sorry for everybody who worked in telcos in the UK but there was a bit of a snobbery in terms of there were a lot of mobile t- uh, networks that went global that were born out of the UK so what could you possibly teach the UK about mobile telcos uh, you know we, we need a lot and um, I was facilitating a community on a particular product associated with the phone um, and it was associated with voicemail and a a quiet but very sensible voice spoke up I think it was from Croatia just saying oh I've got a, a just a quick story to share with you um, we changed the prompts on the voicemail we changed the order and we've seen growth of x million euros just wondering if anybody else would like to try it now everybody thought that there's nothing else that you could learn about this product but by that one story being shared and okay it was in it was a live community it was an online live session but that one story that was shared that without that structure of a community around it may not have ever seen that there may not have ever been that process of I ought to capture that and I ought to share that. I could record a video, for example. I could do something with that. But they had the opportunity to have that conversation. That change was made. And that telco, the increase in revenue from that product was tens of millions of euros from one conversation. So it brings to mind for me, as well as obviously learners being savvy curators, what about the what about creation what are we doing in organizations to foster that natural behavior of that might be something that's really valuable for something out for somebody else or even if i haven't created it i found something that's really valuable it took me a while to get that youtube video that was the right one but that one's really good and i could save other people time by sharing this by working out loud Uh, you know there are a couple of things in response to that first of all Uh, When we talk about learners who need a solution, who are confronted with a thousand video tutorials on how to run an Excel spreadsheet, you know, I think there's a unique role that L&D can start to play is we can help curate some of these things. And rather than us develop the one final Excel course, we can say here are 10 really good Excel videos that you, you can choose from and maybe just offer, you know, help the learner filter, help the learner funnel down some of those choices so they're not confronted with so many. I, uh, I work for government. And we have very tight regulations around some aspects of the recruitment and hiring process. For example, we have a lot of of regulations around um, uh, age discrimination issues, veterans preference issue. And so not necessarily everything in the whole world about how to recruit talent 
is applicable to us. We, we may, in fact, violate, inadvertently violate rules about that. So somebody in my organization might help aggregate some videos on the selection and the interview process that are specific to a government application. You see what I mean? So yeah. it, it yeah. may not be that we are developing the six-hour workshop anymore so much as helping guide learners to that or having a place, as you say, where they can say, look, I just found these six great videos and they fit our guidelines and having a single place where all the learners can share um, what what they've learning. But the, the other thing that you mentioned, it, and I, I find it really, really interesting, I wrote a piece last month on causing serendipity because so much of what happens in terms of our learning in the workplace and out is very often dependent on somebody like in your example who just happens to say, oh, we changed the voice prompts. You know, it happens to come out in a conversation. The person sitting next to you happens to say something in a meeting and all these light bulbs go off. So figuring out what we can do to help capture that a little bit better. The, the frustrating thing for me is that we capture all the other things that aren't helpful. Uh, yeah. We, we, ca- we capture all of these activities and reports. We capture the number of calls somebody made. We capture the number of contacts they have. Or we capture the number of hits on a website. And we don't really capture information that might actually be useful well, <laughs> useful to each other, right? You're so. absolutely right. And the serendipity thing is so interesting. Is that that whole kind of it, and it's really good, but it is a bit cliched now. I know it's a little yeah. bit tired, but the old phrase being a Gary player, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Right. It's the same about creating enough opportunities for those conversations to happen. That in the end, as much as your best efforts as an L&D professional will be that I believe that this is the best example of practice that we have as you know, context is king context is king and in the end that having that one conversation was always going to be significantly more valuable than trying to commission something about the best way in which you use this product or like you say with excel do you commission a brand you know we're all struggling with pivot tables so do you commission a new a new program exactly like as you said no you don't you find some of the best videos slightly different approaches and people will find their way but we can do so much to make that journey easier yeah um it's funny at the moment on my in front of me on my desk there's a dilbert cartoon that says if everyone is doing it then best practices is the same thing as mediocre uh, well, and that, and you know that brings Sorry. us on to another another topic because there is something about you know there are jobs to be done and there are rapid ways in which we can get the knowledge for those performance support things that you know like you said it then just calls into question why would you be spending all of that time uh, creating programs on on things that where there's great uh, material already out there and and quite often when I work with organisations actually you know love it or hate it they will have a generic catalogue of content. And I completely accept that some of it is utter baloney and it's no good. But if you've got something that's going in there and curating it and looking for some of those nuggets that actually there's a short extract there that that's darn good. That's what we need to know. But we could wrap around that other YouTube videos, have uh, communities discussing this, looking at the context, uh, sharing lessons learned. Then it it becomes much more, more valuable but it's where the breakthrough thinking is going to happen is where we really ought to be investing. And I'd be really interested, Jane, in your view on, you know, if we're trying to look for, like I say, beyond mediocre, beyond the things that everybody else does, those things that are new, that are innovative, that are new knowledge, new learning, breaking the ground, what should we be doing there? Well, can I answer, can I say something else first? Go, of course. (laughs) 
No, of course. I was, just, I was saying, um, because you and I can clearly talk for about three days without anybody interrupting us. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. There are people who get very defensive about best practices. So I want to go and say, I think that, that, again, we are great at capturing things that aren't very useful. We are great at, 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 at talking about what we do. We are not always great at talking about how we get things done. One of the reasons knowledge workers are so valuable is for their capacity for exception handling. We don't follow six steps all day long, doing the putting the same widget together, putting the same little little screw into the same um, same little bracket. But I, I think one of the things that we can do, to an earlier point you were making, is we need to look for opportunities to help surface those little bits of information that are actually more useful. We need to ask better questions. Instead of saying things like, what did you do last week? How many calls did you make last week? How many reports did you file last week? We need to start saying, how did you do that? How did you learn that? Can you show me how to do that? What was the biggest obstacle you ran into? What is something that you changed that you didn't expect this out, a big outcome for? What is a surprise that occurred? I think that if you can ask people those questions, you will start seeing enthusiastic answers. People are happy to talk about their work. If we give them interesting things to talk about, right? Um, so, so thinking about about how we can ask better questions and how we can can maybe start surfacing those little bits that otherwise are so serendipitous. Now, I do think we can invite more of that. Um, I think that a, another key issue here, though, and you've already mentioned this, is then they have to have somewhere to put it. Mm-hmm. You know, four people saying brilliant things in a meeting isn't very helpful if that's all that happens. To it, so a place where employees can document this, a community where it gets shared, an online um, discussion forum where we can capture some of this uh, would would all be um, be really really helpful. But but you know you mentioned earlier the curator who says here are six videos and here are some good ones and here are not. There's a great example in my new book, Show Your Work, of a fellow who decided he was going to teach himself to code. And he did a nice long blog post about it that Lifehacker ended up picking up. But it's a nice long blog post about what he did over eight weekends to teach himself to code. And among the things he talks about are the fact that he was using various online courses he'd found for coding. And he does a wonderful compare and contrast uh, of the courses that he found and he chose to use and why he chose those. And he also offers tips for the next person. So, for instance, he'll say, well, if you try course A, just remember you pretty much need to go through everything in order. But if you're using course B, I'd say it's important to read the, the module overviews, but then you can skip around. So he's saving the next person a little bit of trouble, maybe cutting a little bit of time for the next one. He's curating information for someone else. And I also, I wrote about this for an ATD publication um, last week. There was a a study uh, that involved school children predicting answers on a a test based on past answers on a test. And and one of the issues they were testing in the study was, was the value of articulating your decisions to someone else, you know, explaining to someone why you thought uh, the rationale for an answer would be the next one to come up. And and what they found was that articulating our decisions helps us learn. Articulating why we are uh, a rationale helps us learn from that. And very often, if we are, are writing or talking or thinking with the intent of sharing that with someone else, even if we don't know who that someone is, even if it's a blog post about how you learn to code, we tend to be better at articulating it in a social way of helping someone else 
understand it. Does that make sense? It really does. I really want to ask you about something else that um, (laughs) I have maybe quite a strong view on, and I'd really like to get your view as well, is that if we're looking, this is really looking about those things that are important in uh, the employees today and in the future, the things that we value, the behaviours and the attributes and the skills that we we value in people and in in learning and development, of course. And it it brings to mind for me badges um, and gamification because um, often the the conversation around gamification is that it can be sometimes a little bit limited in terms of uh, engagement with the content or gamification it to support progress getting people back into the content but what I'm really interested in Jane I'd really like your opinion on this is that actually what do we what do we want to reward is it about um providing something like a badge technique or badge mechanism for those that are great at articulating that are great at curation that are doing all those things that you just talked about are those the things that we really ought to be valuing because when you talked before about you know the performance support stuff there's lots of great content out there that if we could curate it then really that's what we want to do rather than just look at the numbers of people completing stuff and consuming stuff and for me that argument transfers then into into gamification and badges is that actually what are we really trying to motivate here what are we trying to encourage uh you know i've run into that when we talk about some of the apis that track learner uh accomplishments and and the question kept coming up well what are you going to do if you have this learner who shows up on your doorstep and he says i've completed 19 youtube videos and i played six levels of games now where's my promotion (laughs) I mean, that's the point. That that isn't the point. But it's it's funny. I had a conversation just last week about this very thing with uh, Ann Derryberry. I don't know if you know Ann, but she's recently completed graduate work in in gamification and and badges in particular is an interest of hers. Uh, She's pretty well known on on this side of the pond and probably on yours too. You know, and, and one of the things that I have found to be problematic in my career and I've been in this business about 20 years, and I am usually more or less attached to human resources. I, um, I, I find that there has been way too much emphasis on the idea of certificates and that people go off and they get, quote, unquote, certified and they show back up at the office with a, quote, unquote, certificate. And, and many times, this isn't to discount all of them, but many times, pretty much if you've paid $2,000 to go to a workshop, you're going to have to do a lot to not leave that with a certificate, Right. So, you know, there may be a teach back, there may be something that they do, but, and I've seen this especially in instructor facilitation skills. Uh, so I, you know, I think that, that badge is done well, especially if it's something smaller, demonstrating smaller skills, demonstrating particular talents, demonstrating particular levels of accomplishment could be very, very useful, for instance, in the employment field. And, and an example that came up was an example Anne had of a, of a doctor in the States who specializes in, he is the, the, forerunner in, in a new experimental treatment for breast cancer. He's doing really uh, aggressive, cutting-edge new things with radiation treatment, early and small, that seems to be having a great effect. All right, so we have this guy who went to medical school, right? He got a diploma. He's got yeah. his certificate, if you will. But what is it about this one guy? If you're looking for your a doctor, how could you find the one guy that, that is trying new stuff, faster stuff, better stuff, And what she found with this doctor that we're talking about is that he took two weeks off and went to, I I think it was Denmark. I may be making that up. He went out of the country 
And he spent two weeks with a specialist who is pioneering this treatment there. So he did something extra. He used his own time. He stepped out of the box that his colleagues are in. Shouldn't there be some way we know that about him? I mean, wouldn't a badge be the thing well, I mean, in that case that would set him apart for a patient studying a website looking for area doctors who specialize in breast cancer treatment? I mean, do you see my point? Absolutely. A- absolutely. Um, so, so a badge or a dot or some sort of something on his website or some sort of credential that was meaningful to the patient as opposed to just one more certificate for, with an acronym we don't understand. I, th- I think there's a lot of potential there. But, but to your point about gamification, I've seen this happen with so many things, and you have too, over the years. You know, People love the concept of gamification, but then they don't want to put the resources and time and effort into it that they need. It's not just a matter of getting a bunch of points for achieving three levels that aren't very meaningful. I mean, it needs to be, if you're going to try gamification, it isn't just a bunch of multiple choice tests with a smiley face at the end, right? It needs to be very thought out. And to your point, we need to not just reward getting the right answer on a multiple choice because there should be something, as with this doctor, who goes and actually tries these treatments and has a certain outcome and that that is rewarded and not just this, oh, well, he went to, to 17 days of, of continuing education credit, so he must be great. I, I don't know. I think I'm babbling now. But No, no I, th- yeah. I think that's a, a great point. I saw an interesting and unfortunately, and hopefully I better add it after the broadcast because I cannot remember the name of it right now, but I saw an interesting piece of technology at last year's DevLearn. And essentially, you could have um, regarded it as just another people directory. There's mm-hmm. just another way in which people can create their their you know their their uh, page their profile on an intranet and off you go, but actually what it was doing is as well as it had some some nice interesting features like it would automatically populate a lot of your info from LinkedIn because frankly people can't be bothered to go in and fill out their in their um, entry in a people directory, but what it would do the whole philosophy behind it um, was for people to be able to connect with other people that could mentor or support or have been there before. or or had done something that was related that could support you in a particular uh, learning or organizational need that you had. And exactly to the point that you said, actually, Jane, in so much as, okay, I, let's say, for example, you know, I'm about to take a project management uh, qualification, but I am really struggling on this aspect of it. Okay, mm-hmm. I can look here. And it's not just people that have got, you say, like you say, certificate A, certificate B, certificate C. It's people actually saying, I would like to be able to support and mentor people on the on this particular subject, or I am running a session, or I have published this. So that it's actually advertising things that are really tangible, and I can connect with that person. Let's say, rather than, um, you know, in the, in the UK, Prince 2 tends to be the, the, you know, the main qualification or PMI in Europe or whatever, that, you know, okay, I've got that qualification. Well, it sort of means something, but it doesn't really mean that much. But if I, if I could say, actually, you know, I'd really like to be able to run sessions with people that need support on these things, it suddenly becomes much more valuable. So actually, your badge, that means something. Right. Well, and I, yeah, I think that that's the, the critical thing. It doesn't matter what we do or what we call it. It needs to be Uh, It needs to be something meaningful and there needs to be a measure of something that matters. But, you know, this is not a new conversation. We have been having this conversation forever about the difference between testing for knowledge and recall and testing for actual performance ability. And and now we're finding another way to do it. But I find it very frustrating when I go, say, to see an e-learning program and it's highly touted as being gamified with three exclamation points. And all it is is a drag and drop about the different parts of a car. 
or it's just a multiple choice quiz, and instead of getting um, pass-fail, you move to the next level of another multiple choice quiz, right? Uh, you know, it's not really gamified. They haven't, and the issue with it being gamified is not just adding um, quiz elements, but adding game elements, which has some kind of intrinsic motivation, which encourages the learner to learn, right, which helps learners move to another level of performance and not just rote memorization. Uh, and, and that's the thing I think people miss and they cut it, they cut the corners they want to say it's gamified but they aren't really they aren't really uh, including the game elements that make a game a game you know it's just as Clark Quinn would say a tarted up quiz exactly and I, I, we always have this conversation about you know if you if you're thinking actually we want to make this into a game do you have the budget of call of duty you probably don't so right. whatever you're going to be right. able to try and achieve you know right. and well, have so that credibility don't. you know <laughs> don't if you if you can't do call of duty yeah. if you can't do angry birds then quit pretending that you are and quit saying you want to do it for a dollar and a half and sell somebody a template that you can gamify everything tomorrow uh, for free oh my goodness we could go on forever but i had another interesting conversation about badges the other day and it's the consumer or the other or maybe the worker or the learner or the boss's perception of a badge uh, there's a, a restaurant chain i think there are a lot of these but there's one i had in mind when i said this there's a restaurant chain here a steakhouse chain where the waiters uh, all have all kinds of, of little pens and, and little ribbons and little medals that they wear. And you'll notice when you're in the restaurant that some, some people have only a few and some people are just rattling from all the metal that they have on. And, and I thought I had talked to a server about this, but maybe I hadn't. But my understanding was that these pens represented experience uh, levels of service, like people who had received a certain number of compliments, people who had stayed a certain number of years, people who had been certified in, say, food safety or, or, a, per, or a certain kind of food preparation, and, and it's called flair. And in, in that way, I had made the assumption, or I thought I'd been told, that the people with, with more flair, those were badges, essentially, that they had been recognized for some some quantifiable thing, some tangible thing. And a friend of mine at the table said, I thought they just bought those. <laughs> and I'm not, right. I'm and what was sure the answer? I'm, I well, I don't know. I haven't gone back to check. But does it matter? Yeah. If the perception of the public is you can just go buy a bunch of badges and put them on your shirt, does it does it matter? I, you know. And I think back to our, our comments. If we're going to say we're doing badges, it needs to measure something meaningful, and they need to be real as opposed to a certificate. And I'm sorry, but you can, you can go buy certificates, pretty much. Um, I'm hoping that my doctor didn't do that, but I think that you could probably do it for, say, a, a software certification process or something. Sure. So, yeah, but Jane, I was, so I'm aware I've taken up so much of your time. This is gold <laughs> dust. It's brilliant. Um, but uh, one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you is, well, we, we've started the conversation about talking about learners are changing and their their place in what we would uh, you know perhaps previously in, in decades gone by seen as you know the job of L&D of course that's just not the way that we learn that's not you know with the, the democratization of you know information and the, the the sources that we have at our fingertips things are different and we've talked about it from the learner's perspective but what about the organization and what about those people that make their profession in learning and development what do you see as the future for them well i you know and i, I want to say again i don't know that humans have changed i don't know that the learners the learners have changed i think their view of learning has evolved i think that they are wising up to the fact that sitting in a chair having somebody read slides to you isn't really how 
I get my job done all day. When I really want to know how to do something, I go to Google, I go to YouTube, I look it up. I suppose the big difference, Jane, is they've got the choice now. They can get up and yeah. leave and go and find it somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, I think that they, they, have fig- they figured that out. So I'm not saying we need to suddenly change all our approaches. I do think we need to change to your, to your question about what about the future of L&D. I do think we need to start seriously talking about getting out of the course business especially when there are so many other options nowadays. It's not like learners can't go find most things somewhere else. And I think it's vain and naive for us to think everything we do is all that special and proprietary, right? Um, Much of the stuff we do, much of the stuff my colleagues and I do is basic compliance training. It's basic onboarding training. uh, It's basics, uh, listening, communication, leadership, other soft skills training. It is not all that unique or remarkable or different. So I think, you know, figuring out how we can, deliver uh, experiences that are better for our learners, that are quicker for them, that help solve their problems more quickly. I think helping to curate so that we can help them access the right things or a minimal number of things. I mean, I mean, we all suffer from information overload. And if L&D can help with that, I think that that could be a, a crucial role we fill is helping direct people to particular things. But I also, since we've brought it up a couple times, I've seen some challenges with the idea of curation lately. I have seen a number of people suddenly just taking a lot of stuff from everywhere else and slamming it into a single blog post and saying they've curated resources. They haven't. I mean, all that is is more information overload. A good curator has a point of view, has, uh, as I was describing earlier, you know, we have certain regulations around the hiring process. That is the point of view. I'm not going to select everything Forbes ever published on the interviewing techniques. I'm going to choose the six things that are that work for my workforce. So having a particular point of view, having an editorial point of view is fine as long as you're clear on what that is. So it's not just a matter of aggregating a lot of stuff. It's a matter of choosing and vetting and thinking through um, and I think inviting users to help share what they have found and what they have learned about um, can be invaluable. And, and this idea of inviting other people to contribute is a new idea to L&D. We are great at creating and delivering and deploying and publishing and deploy and, and pushing out content. We, we are going to need to learn to listen and we're going to need to learn to help other people help us with this, I think. Well, on that note, Jane, I could listen to you all day, but we will have to wrap it up I said, because otherwise people's iPhones and other MP3 devices will be melting, melting batteries. with this. But um, Jane, I can't thank you enough. It's been absolutely fantastic. What um, a great interview. But Jane, thank you on behalf of everybody from Learning Now Radio for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Lovely. Thank you. This is Learning Now Radio with Colin Steed and Lisa Minogue-White. Well, that's it for episode two. We hope you enjoyed it and you will find it valuable for your work. Please remember to share it with your colleagues. And in episode three, we'll be talking to Mike Collins about the work he's done on setting up and running online communities. Thank you so much for joining us on Learning Now Radio. If you'd like to rate or recommend us on iTunes, we'd be incredibly grateful. And we look forward to joining you on the next episode.